This is the Inshuma podcast, where we explore the Southeastern traditional tattoo revitalization movement. We are your hosts, Lindsay and Olivia. In this episode, we will explore the intersections of mainstream tattoo history and colonization. So I should bring out Olivia, Chata Micha Chikasha Sia, Seattle, Washington, Upperly. So Lindsay, Chata Sia. Los Angeles, Adali. Washington, Adali. Marysville, Washington, Adali, Achi. Or, uh, Stohob, Jacni, Adali. Halito, hello. Uh, we want to thank everyone for their photos of their knit together and in Shuma merch. We are also getting closer to launching our Patreon account. And thanks to this, we will be putting a hold on releasing any new merch until after the new year. Just a note on this episode, we will continue to dive into our history, and thus we will be talking about colonization, genocide, and things of that nature. In this episode, you're going to hear the voice of Danielle Cancino, or as I'm going to refer to her, Danny. Uh, Danielle Cancino, she is a friend of mine that I've known since community college. And she has a master's of fine arts from USC. She is a beautiful uh, artist, but she is a professional tattooer. Uh, She focuses a lot in the Latinx community, um, but she is Yaki as well. And I really wanted to have her on this podcast as we discuss at a more global look of tattooing. My name is Danny Cancino. My pronouns are she, her, they, them. Yeah, my mother is half Pasquayaki and half Puerto Rican. And her family came over to California from Arizona, New Mexico. And my father is several generations from Los Angeles, Chicano, Mexican-American. My educational background, I guess, I, I just finished my master's of fine art degree at USC, University of Southern California. I obtained a bachelor's of fine art from Laguna College of Art and Design, and I am a licensed full-time tattoo artist. I wrote my thesis on it because I felt a lot of stigmas as a tattooer being one, a female, one that identifies as a woman, and also being a person of color and being uh, of Chicano or Latinx descent. I feel like that those stigmas around, the negative stigmas around tattooing kind of conflicted for me in the art realm or in the fine art realm within the institution or within the walls of the gallery. And, and I, I kind of wanted to make, make aware that there is a distinction between the art form in terms of it being low art versus high art. As we try to learn more about the history of our own people's tattooing practices, we came across portions of mainstream tattoo history as well. We noticed a distinct lack of appropriate respect, credit, and honor to Indigenous people's role and artistry in the mainstream tattooing history. Some evidence of this was when Britt and myself attended the Museum of Pop Culture's exhibit, Body of Work, Tattoo Culture. And regardless of the fact that the curators have reached out to modern traditional tattoo artists from several tribal nations, there was a lack of real follow through of telling the intertwined history of indigenous contribution and colonization's impact on the history of tattooing. And although we ourselves are no experts in tattoo history or even the broader indigenous tattoo history, we did want to at least bring forth perhaps the beginning of a discussion regarding the intersection of colonization and the history of mainstream tattoo. For these next two episodes and throughout this series, the issue of modernity or modernism versus primitivism will play an active role in the discussion as it pertains to colonialism, appropriation, and revitalization. To give some background to what this is, here are some quotes to contextualize it. Primitivism is a Western discourse that, utilizing refined conceptions of non-Western cultures as savage, underdeveloped, sexually promiscuous, more in touch with nature, or free from modern problems, among others, functions variously as an idealized nostalgia for the past, as a threat of the foreign, or as the potential representation of difference or connection. These statements must be qualified further. 
Primitivist discourse presupposes that certain peoples and cultures have been forced into a discursive position of the primitive in an attempt to separate and control them temporality, spatiality, and culturally. And modernism presupposes the production of certain cultures as the modern preset of a linear progression, even if that modernity is defined through rupture. We will, of course, continue to discuss this in future episodes, as well as on our social media. For this episode, we will be heavily drawing upon the works of Beverly Yun Thompson, Margaret Mifflin, Matthew L. Ose, and Danny Cansino. We should note that prior to the Europeans colonizing outside of Europe, there had been examples of tattooing happening among the European people. Do you feel it is important to discuss European Christian culture and mentality when discussing tattoo history? Absolutely. Because I think that this is going to tie into a later conversation where the influence of tattooing in America came from Polynesian cultures through sailors and like, say, you know, expedition. I don't, I don't know. I don't really want to call that culture, but through expedition versus the way that one might think or one, you know, it w- would have or should have been influenced through Native American culture, but wasn't. And, and that is a big because, a big because of Christianity. And because Catholicism was imposed on indigenous people through genocide and through erasure of their culture. And, and so because of that, it was seen as degenerate. It was seen, it it had a lot of negative connotations. So that's that's what I think really kept Native American tattooing out of America for a long time. We're going to go real far back right now. So in the time of Constantine, when he was emperor, he decreed that Rome would become Christian. And in doing so, it outlawed the use of tattoos. And this Christian idea did continue on. And still, in a sense, continues on today where a lot of people are, you know, your body's a temple, don't tattoo it. It says it in the Bible. Um, This idea really stems back all the way to Constantine. And even despite this, there was still tattooing going on in Europe while the quote unquote pagan people, you know, did some tattooing. Most of the Christian side of Europe was tattooing criminals. Historically, European pilgrims to Jerusalem would get a cross tattooed onto themselves. Additionally, the French had previously also tattooed criminals. The Picts, who are an indigenous group of people in Britain, were known to have tattoos. The ink similar to ours produced a blue tone. The Norse people and their Vikings traditionally also had tattoos. In addition to the Picts, British and other Europeans' initial encounters with tattooing would have initially been from the Vikings traveling through and raiding their territories. These early encounters with tattooing may have created deeper entrenched feelings of negativity towards tattooing prior to Europeans ever stepping foot in other places in the world. However, by the 18th century, it's believed that Europeans had stopped tattooing. Scholars suspect this is due to the way that Captain Cook of the Endeavor and the French who encountered Native folks on the eastern seaboard of what is now known as the United States, as well as other European colonizers, recorded the tattooing practices of Indigenous peoples internationally as if it was a novelty. So mainstream tattooing history often discusses encounters with Polynesians in the 1700s to have been the genesis of tattooing among Europeans, followed up by its role or prevalence in military and sailor cultures. And we cannot address the modern history of tattooing in the mainstream without discussing colonization's role in tattooing. In your paper, you start talking about sailors taking that art form to kind of expand on your paper. Was that basically how it was brought to like the rest of the world through the sailors? I think it wasn't maybe brought to the rest of the world as as much as it was. I guess it was it was brought to the world, but kind of like as a taboo trend. Like it was something that because at the time Constantine outruled tattoos and they were not legal when those expeditions took place and and they, you know, brought indigenous people back to Europe for display. So people started getting these kind of like underground garage tattoos, like, oh, look, I got what this, you know, savage person got. I'm tough or I'm like this. Yeah. And that was it. So it was it actually started amongst very wealthy people in Europe. So it was very common for a lord or a lady to have a hidden tattoo somewhere that they, they only showed their friends. Oh, you know? 
Yeah, actually, Winston Churchill's mom wasn't really accepted in high society, even though she was born into high society because she had a snake tattoo on her wrist. Well, see, yeah, that's that's why, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like very trendy, you know. Yeah. And and like they would take those Polynesian or Tahitian images because those are the first images that sailors would get or, you know, those you know, they would get the images that the islanders would do. And then they started kind of tweaking them to be more applicable to the region that they were getting tattooed in. So like, let's say I got this palm tree overseas somewhere. Well, when you bring that back to Europe, ladies might be like, oh, well, I don't want a palm tree. Now I want a daisy or I want a flower, like a rose or something that wouldn't be in Tahitian culture, but because it's now in Europe, you're going to see like different, different imagery that's more applicable to their life. Since the Spanish, French, and British encounters with Southeastern people predate the wide use of the term tattoo, in order to find early recordings regarding enchunwa, or tattoos, we had to look for terms used by Europeans prior to tattoo. We found that the terms pictograms, hieroglyphics, pictus, pickings, and picage have all been used historically to describe tattoos in the southeastern region by the French in particular. It's believed that many of these terms are based off the pics in Britain. In 1538, the conquistador Hernando de Soto set out from Spain and arrived on the shores of what is now Tampa Bay in 1539. He was one of the first Europeans to invade and explore the southeast. His expedition was recorded and published in 1557 and holds the earliest recordings of Southeastern Native peoples. Similarly, in the 1530s, the French began their invasion, exploration, and colonization of North America. By the 1700s, their soldiers had infiltrated tribal nations through doing deeds of valor on behalf of the tribes during battles and skirmishes and were honored by being adopted into these tribes as a full clan member, and were tattooed in the process of being adopted into various tribes. During this time, the French began being tattooed by the tribes out of their own fascination, wanting to appear exotic or to be able to elevate themselves in indigenous military rank in ways that they would be unable to in French and European society. During these adoptions, they would have received tattoos indicating their affiliation with their clan, their family, or tribe. As time progressed, French soldiers had their names, French motifs, Christian motifs, and others tattooed on their bodies by tribes. However, many removed their tattoos prior to arriving back in Europe as it was heavily looked down upon there. With the influence of the French and other Europeans among the tribal nations, it's recorded that increasingly crosses and other Christian symbols were incorporated into tattoos. Europeans understood this to be an adoption of European ideas. However, Southeastern people could have viewed these symbols as the four fire symbol or stickball sticks crossed. Sadly, by the 1700s, the slave trade was already in full force. There are accounts of Chickasaws and others aiding in the theft of Native peoples to sell to Europeans and those folks being shipped off to the Caribbean islands and other locations to work as slaves. In her second episode, Dr. Michelle Johnson Jennings states that 250,000 Choctaws had been sold off into slavery and notes that more research into this time period is needed. In 1719, two fully painted tattooed men thought to be Choctaw Muscogee arrived in London with a slave trader from the Carolinas named John Pite. Pite's money-making scheme was to parade them around Europe as a human zoo. In order to increase interest in these two tattooed Choctaw Muscogee men, he created sham titles for them like the American Kings and American Princes. Additionally, even their native names had a level of fakeness given to them by Pite. So in Pite's quest to make money, displaying these two relatives in Europe, they found their way to Upper Saxony in 1722, where they were described and illustrated for magazines. Lars Krutak, author of Tattooing Traditions of Native North America, Ancient and Contemporary Expressions of Identity, says, Of particular interest are the published comments focusing on the elaborate tattoos which are fairly accurate since they jibe with later historical accounts of Choctaw Creek and Woodland tattooing traditions. He goes on to say, the fate of the American princes seems to have faded in history. 
but images of their tattoos have not. Some say they were gifted to the Russian Tsarina Catherine I, but what is known, however, is that their names appeared again in an anonymous Masonic document printed in London in 1726 entitled The Grand Mystery Laid Open or The Freemason Signs of the World Discoveries. While the primary indigenous influences in mainstream tattooing is given to the Polynesian people, primarily the Tahitians, this showcases that European people had been interacting and influenced by tribes in the eastern seaboard of North America. Furthermore, the native people were being put into slavery and also paraded around Europe to perpetuate notions of indigenous savagery and primitivism and upheld European white notions of their own modernity and, in their minds, superiority. What do you think was the reason for this strong fascination for Europeans with indigenous people being tattooed so strongly enough that they took them to Europe for tours of display? I think that that always has to do with creating separation between people. I think that that is why we had the Renaissance. I think that is why the Renaissance kind of prove like in, in the Renaissance and in all, you know, things like the Renaissance and in literature and in, in philosophy and all those things into the Renaissance of art. Right. It was like this proving that Europeans are superior in thought, in philosophy, in art, in skill set than than native people were or black or brown people were. And I think it's always been about that. It's always been about like, let me show you some proof as to how we are superior by creating these rules that we made up ourselves and applied them to all societies that are unaware of these rules. <laughs> and you're just savages because you don't understand these rules that we created ourselves for our society. So ending on that note, I would really like to open the floor uh, to have ourselves a little discussion on this. So what do y'all think on this? I was really thinking about how, uh, just how the Europeans we're like really wanting these tattoos, right? Like when, uh, and especially in the Southeastern part, the French were really wanting these tattoos and wanting to be part of the tribes even. Um, and so much so that they were like adopted in, but yet when they like go back home or like go to Europe, they have to like remove the tattoos because then they'd be shunned by society. And I think this was an interesting thing because if you remember in our last episode we talked about how appalled French were when they first saw like Choctaw people or like southeastern people because of how we dressed but also because of our tattoos so I think it's interesting how we go from they are appalled and shocked and um, even offended by tattoos and about you know you know indigenous bodies then going from that mindset then to this, well, now I want these tattoos and like, I want these higher ranks. So yeah, I think it's an interesting shift um, going from that place to now I'm integrated, right? Or they think they're integrated um, into these tribes because they've gotten these tattoos and probably for a lot of them, they were integrated uh, into these tribes. Uh, but then going home, they now have to remove them because then they'd be shunned. And I think it's kind of uh, ironic, right? How they're like, oh, crap, well, now I have to get rid of these tattoos or else I'm going to be shunned. To me, what it reminds me of is essentially just that like, the French were down to colonize by any means necessary, right? Um, like, it's not as if they really were into necessarily being a part of our tribes or our cultures. But again, you know, it's it's one of those things where um, to be able to successfully colonize an area, to infiltrate an area, um, you have to be able to build relationships with the local people, right? They understood that they they understood that you know, like we um, upheld people in our communities that did things of valor and its honor, right, and that 
to be able to have influence within our tribal nations, it was more likely more successful to become a part of them, right, than try to negotiate. And so their their tactic to be able to accomplish this, right, and to, like, use at least Choctaws against the Chickasaws, the, the Cherokees, uh, you know, other people who had aligned themselves with the British was to be able to become members of our families, members of our clans. Um, and so they would do these deeds to get in there. And then just like as a part of the process, a part of the, the adoption ceremony, um, to become full-fledged members of our nations and of, you know, our communities, they would get a tattoo as a part of that. And then, of course, knowing that it's highly looked down upon, they could be ostracized in Europe, um, they would go ahead and remove those um, before returning back home. I think, too, like, the the thing that's ironic for me in particular when, when thinking about... Uh, you know, keeping the body pure and, and these Christian notions that they came with in order to colonize us and um, to denigrate and erase our tattooing practices, this idea of a body being a temple, right? Um, that you don't go ahead and blemish your, your skin because that's going against God and the way that God made you. Um, but the fact is, when you look at Christian temples and all these other temples, they're just covered in artwork. I can't think of a single church or temple from that time that's well-known that doesn't have some sort of painting, right? Doesn't have some sort of stained glass window that's creating all these beautiful colors that, you know, will splash not only from the window, but like all over that building and its interior and place of worship as the day goes through. So this notion that if your body is a temple and you should keep it pure is just ludicrous because how are we donning our own temples that we're making this analogy from? They're not just stark white walls. Like, it's actually really funny when you look at uh, temples, um, and it's like this comparison that I've never even thought of, but when you look at, uh, like, let's say a Christian cathedral, you have you have these glass stained windows or these murals on the wall um, and they discuss different Christian stories. And the reason that that is, is because most of the population was illiterate and this was their way of learning these stories. Um, And yet here um, we know from tattoos that this was a pictorial way of discussing, Oh, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. And so I'm sorry. Like I just like had that like, (laughs) that light bulb of like, oh my God, here's these images discussing things. Um, And I'm blanking out on the term. And I'm sure if any of my art history professors are listening to this, they're going to be very mad at me that I've forgotten the term, but, um, but it's basically to see an image and to understand and learn that way. Um, Anyone listening to this knows what that term is. You can yell at me in our DMs. Um, (laughs) But I also want to go back to this idea of, yeah, they are infiltrating are our tribes and they're adopting appropriating really um our tattoos and our symbols and it's like oh yeah look how look how cool and great i am um but to later on also start going and taking christian symbols uh and putting it in and it's like well doesn't your bible tell you you're not supposed to tattoo so then why are you doing christian symbols and i i don't know it's just like why are you going and doing these tattoos when it's seen as a bad thing, but now you're seeing it as a cool thing? And I just don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, and also like while you're talking, I was like, this is like literally some of the beginnings of cultural appropriation by the book. We'll probably make an Instagram post about it going in depth about like cultural appropriation versus appreciation, you know, because if these people really were down, right, like if they're like, okay, like we want to be part of your tribe and we want to be like, like actually and like not for the sake of colonization, if they really were like wanting to like do that versus doing it as a means to an end that's a totally different story, right? You know what I mean? So, cause that does exist, but in this case it does not because <laughs> they're colonizers. So 
Um, and they have a they have a means to an end as to why they're doing this. Yeah. So, but it's like it's basic textbook, basically. It's like classic. It's like, oh, you want to take the thing, you want to do the thing that we have, because it gives you something. It gives mm-hmm. a rank. But then when it's time to like face the facts, slash go back to Europe, now you don't want it anymore. And it's like, oh, well, indigenous people can't just take their indigeneity off. It's literally basic appropriation. It's like you want the you want the flashy things, right? You want the you want the imagery. But when it comes down to it, you don't really want what comes with that. You look at anything with appropriation, that's what it is. Like, you want the shiny thing. You don't want what's behind it. You don't want the lived experience. Yeah, and and not only that, but it's like, obviously, they're using this, as, as we've said over and over, they're using this as, like, a way to infiltrate, basically befriend. And, like, oh, hey, see, like, we, ha- we have the Mark II, and we're cool. Um, but then it's like, okay, we're going to go back home, and, like, we're going to... We're going to make this go away and no one else will know that we were friends with quote unquote savages. Um, I hate that term. Um, and then they would just take our people and then parade them to further bring about this idea of, oh, see, they're like primitive and like, we're really cool because we don't have tattoos. Um, it's just a lot of bullshit. Additionally, I found it interesting, too, that uh, quite extensively the French, when talking about tattoos, you know, like they um, they came over, they had this this idea that much like Europe of the time, that they would be able to basically figure out people's rank via looking at their clothing over here. And that's not necessarily the way that we operated within our tribes Um and I, I think that, like, the fascination with some of our tattoos comes from the fact that in their own countries, um, highly, or within their own countries, clothing was highly regulated to the point where there were laws around people not getting uh, or be able to wear clothes above their rank and station, right? And so uh, the mobility there was, was completely lacking. It was essentially almost like a caste system from, you know, what I can understand from the research. And so I think they found it fascinating as well that in order to move up in rank within Native societies, um, they could, you know, do these things of valor and then and move up in that way. And so I think for some of them that came from lesser means um, and were without the ability to move up within French society that this was seen as something that, um, you know, is like a means to an end, that at least within some culture, (laughs) not necessarily their own culture, um, that they would be able to be looked more highly upon um, and, you know, be richer in the ways that we considered rich um, within our tribal nations over here, um, you know, within the the quote-unquote new world as they saw it, even though it's very old world to us. But, you know, from their own viewpoint, they were certainly down to do things that they saw as repulsive uh, to be able to accomplish French gains. Um, and also, again, you know, to find a way at least somewhere in the world to move up in, in rank and stature, regards to the fact they're going to go back to France anyway and get back to likely, you know, their low ranking stature where they'd probably wear crap clothes. Something I find ironic that we will get into later on in this pod in this episode of the podcast and it will kind of be like a through line um, is the fact that like when you think about the origins of feminism, particularly within North America, what's not often talked about in, in that in that history, but certainly is within indigenous feminist studies, is the fact that historically white women, when they were either taken in as like captives from you know battles or skirmishes or just like war whatever um or just encountered uh you know native societies on the eastern coast a lot of those societies a lot of those cultures and tribes are matriarchal matrilineal and the fact is that like women were getting treated much better within our native societies than our within our tribes than they were you know, among Euro-Americans, Europeans, um, 
pretty sure most of us are pretty familiar with the treatment of white women in their own Euro-American and European cultures, right? Um, this was not what was going on within Native society, and they saw that and were envious of that. And so that's how these ideas of first-wave feminism even freaking came about. And it was to such the extent, too, that there's writings that document and talk about how when European women were brought back into their settlements their like little like colonial towns, whatever, that they would have to post up, um, you know, like soldiers or whatever to make sure that they wouldn't go and sneak off and run away to go back to the tribe that they came from. Didn't matter if it was just they were a captive, didn't matter, um, you know, if, uh, you know, they just encountered it, whatever. There was like, it was obviously happening well enough that they had to document it and then like make proceedings around it. So I find it ironic um, you know, these tales about, you know, how Native people are just, like, mistreating white women and these, like, fears around, like, um, you know, being held captive and all this kind of crap um, that Euro- Euro-Americans and Europeans had. Um, because, obviously, feminism wouldn't be here without Native people and also white women being envious of, like, what we had going on. Um and I, I find it like later on we'll talk about it, but this ties into the whole like sideshow thing and like all these like fabricated stories of um, these white women being captives and like forcefully tattooed. Um, yeah, I'll just I'll just wait to go on about that because that completely isn't that part of you know the episode. But that's just something to think about whenever we're thinking about this history, both as an intersex feminism and also these. Um, these telltales that Europeans had and were telling to validate different things or like validate their fears or having tattoos or, you know, throwing off, um, you know, European beauty standards for um, ones at the time that were clearly understood and known to be indigenous and native. And everything you just said, I'm like, yep. And I think it's important to note that a lot of these people that were coming to uh, what is now known as the U.S., um, were not able, they were not these, like, pillars of society back home, right? They were not able to become what they wanted to be in Europe, right? Because they're the same as everyone else, and, like, they're in the military. A lot of them were not noble. And so then they come to the U.S., and now they're like, oh, we're going to make, uh, now we are the, you know, superiority, like, we are superior to these people, their ego, you know, their ego and like concept of whiteness. This was all developing at this time, you know, in the, in the U S at least. So yeah, it's very interesting. They said, I mean, everything you said, Brit, I was like, yep. <laughs> like this is that time where you have these like people that really were not able to feel superior in their own society, um, in their own racial group, but then now coming to the U S now they're like, Oh, okay. Um, I am superior, right? Like they think they are. And I just want to, this might sound a little bit like blunt and or salty. I won't apologize. If it's not already really apparent, all this history that we're talking about on this episode, all of this history that we talked on the last episode, some of the things that Michelle shared, some of the things we shared in the first episode, these are all reasons that... When we go forward and talk about traditional tattooing of Southeastern and the designs that we share, this is all for Southeastern people. This is, and when we say Southeastern, we're meaning specifically, as we indicated last episode, um, people who belong to what is now the Southeast United States. Not Southeast Alaska. I make that joke because everyone always thinks it's Southeast up here uh, as Alaska when, when talking about in Washington, but yeah, the Southeast United States, so the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Muscogee, um, Seminole, Cherokee, Homa, Yuchi, uh, Natchez, on and on and on, all of the Lumbees, um, yeah, just Catawba, all of those ones that, you know, all belong to the Southeast of that region. And, you know, like we super appreciate and we understand and we realize that uh, we have an international audience and I can't tell you how flattered that we are, even if you all aren't our ideal audience. Um, <laughs> that's great. Um, and we love that. 
But again, we want you to understand that there is a long history here of colonization and of appropriation and misappropriation. And that it's cool if you want to learn. I'm glad you are deciding to listen to Native voices that come from this. Um, But it kind of just stops there. Like... Like, you're not to take up the needle and start utilizing our designs. It's not for you. Um, y'all have your own tattooing practices. Like we talked about a little bit earlier, there is tattooing practices within Europe. And even if you didn't have traditional tattoos for, like, the indigenous people that you come from, from the specific areas of Europe, y'all already done appropriated, uh, you know, our practices enough that, you know, there's modern uh, ways of tattooing that you can just continue on in that way. Um, I don't know. Go get like a fairy tale tattooed on you. Use traditional concepts of your own peoples, but leave our stuff alone. Um, cause there's already been among like, you know, people, uh, and this isn't just like for European people. If there's like any like non-native, uh, non-Southeastern people listening to this, like, same applies to y'all. Love y'all. So appreciative of the fact that you're listening to our podcast. Continue to definitely support us. Love y'all. But hands off. Yeah. Y'all got your stuff. We got our stuff. It's ours. Please just know that. Understand and that. Marinate on that. Marinate on it. And I mean, like, because what we're talking about is literally contact and like appropriation of our tattoos starting in the 1500s appropriating exactly and the appropriation and then subsequent erasure of our tattoos so it's like we we love people like what Britt was saying learn listen all these things support us like we love we love 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 that this reiterating what Britt just said and you know not everything is for you and that's okay Since we are covering mainstream tattooing history, we'll go into a bit of the history concerning Polynesians' colonization and influence on Euro-American mainstream tattooing. Early accounts of invasion, exploration, and colonization of the Pacific Islands begins in 1568 with the Spanish and continues with the Dutch in the 1600s and finally with the French and the English in the 1700s. Matthew L. Oates notes in his paper, The Skin of Modernity, Primitivism and Tattooing in Literature, notes that Europeans had been commenting on tattooing in the Pacific for 150 years before Captain Cook's first voyage. In 1595, at Fatuhiva in the Marquesas, the Portuguese-born Spanish navigator Pedro Fernandes de Curos recorded in the first European encounters with Pacific tattooing. He describes the Marquesans as they came naked without any part covered their faces and bodies in pattern of blue color painted with fish and other patterns in 1690 the english traveler william demper purchased a half share of geoli or geolo i'm gonna pronounce a lot of this wrong people but it's okay a man from mianges an isolated island due east of southern min done now as you can tell this isn't my this isn't my thing but i'm gonna keep going dampier brought him to england where he displayed diolo's tattooed body for profit so already as early as 1690 we are seeing indigenous people from the pacific islands and other places across the world including what became southeastern united states being taken to europe and displayed to white audiences as a kind of human zoo for profit Oaks goes on to note that scholars have yet to uncover other representations of Pacific tattooing in European writing, if they do exist, until the voyages of discovery in the 18th century. However, we do see the examples of the writings of Choctaw and Muscogee men in 1722 and 1726, respectively, in England. So other indigenous peoples and their tattoos were being showcased and written about between the late 1600s and late 1700s in Europe. 1769 is a crucial year in mainstream tattooing history. This is the year that Captain Cook's Endeavour ship and crew spent three months in Tahiti. Unlike the previous two voyages to the island, which had been quick and violent trips with the goal of getting more supplies for the European ships, the Endeavour stayed for three months and had strict orders to be friendly and trade with the local Tahitians. 
For timeline context, 1776 was when the Declaration of Independence was signed. So this was seven years prior to the 13 colonies becoming the United States of America. As a result, certain levels of relationships formed between Cook's crew and the Tahitian peoples. The crew were given tattoos as a signifier of this friendship. The particular specific exchange can be marked as a cultural exchange and not one of appropriation because the Tahitians made a choice to tattoo the crew or the sailors of the endeavor. Additionally, they controlled under what circumstances and knowledge around the tattoos that the Endeavor crew had access to. This cannot be said for all tattooing history, even to this day, sadly. Beverly Yun Thompson notes in the book, Covered in Ink, Tattoos, Women, and Politics of the Body, some of the places where these voyagers and missionaries encountered indigenous tattooing included Micropolynesia, Fiji, and the Samoan Islands. In Micropolynesia, tattooing was a central art form and was considered decorative, protective, as a kind of wrapping or armor, erotic, or social. In Micropolynesia, as well as Fiji, women were the tattooing experts, and tattoos on women were considered beautifully ornate. In Samoa, male tattooing was considered the counterpart to female childbirth as an expression in the saying, the man grows up and is tattooed. The woman grows up and she gives birth. The tattoo in Samoan culture was utilized to express a very vocal, albeit transnational and dysphoric, set of identities and experiences. Women also received tattoos called the malu over their thighs, though a lighter design than that of the men, as their childbirthing practices balanced out of their proof of pain tolerance. Similar to what we experienced in the Southeast, uh, like what we covered in the last episode, after the voyagers came the missionaries. Thompson goes on to say, when the religious missionaries later followed in the footsteps of the first Western voyagers, they were scornful of these indigenous practices as they clashed with their own religious perspectives. As outsiders unfamiliar with these lands or people, the missionaries attempted to control the population and obliterate these behaviors with violence. They imposed their religion and biblical interpretations upon the population they encountered, encouraging the indigenous people to adopt Christianity with the threat of death if they resisted. Using Leviticus 19.26-28 from the Old Testament of the Bible as justification, the missionaries condemned tattooing. Ye shall not eat anything with blood, neither shall ye use enchantment, not observe times, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks on you. As a result, we begin to see the church outlawing and oppressing traditional tattooing practices throughout the Pacific Islands and the practices in some other places also ceasing like it did with the tribal nations uh, throughout the Americas. So I guess for me, something that like um, really stood out to me, like looking over what happened in the Pacific islands in terms of colonization and especially with tattoos and also thinking about our own history is how similar it was. Right. Um, I remember in my master's, I was in a master's of public administration with a tribal governance concentration. One of the things they talked about in Europe, we get together and talk about like tactics that worked in colonization. And if it worked in one place and they try in other places, like this is why we see this happening not only in North America, but in the Pacific islands. And we also see it happening in Africa. We also see it happening like down in New Zealand and like essentially the world over. And I'm sure also like any Sami people could be like, this is a hundred percent things that we've talked about thus far in terms of history, not just on this episode, but in general, be like, yeah, that stuff happened to us too. And it's because there was these concerted efforts. Um, and I think that like really goes to show you that how successful that is. I mean, that's not, I mean, and these are things too, the tactics that were carried over even into the 1940s and beyond to people that weren't necessarily considered indigenous. And we now recognize as like really heinous things that happened specifically during World War II and tactics that Hitler ended up using that he was inspired of that had happened to indigenous people previous. And that's kind of all I'll say on that particular note. Um, but another thing I think is really interesting is that uh, regardless of whether it was in Europe or like in Americas or in Polynesia, like, how a lot of the tattoo colors at that time, like something that was like used for, you know, like black was essentially kind of blue. I know it's just like my own like short, like aesthetic, like, oh, that's interesting. I guess the thing that 
I'm also reflecting on like what Brit, what you just said is um, the tactics of colonization, the tactics of that they use, and how they were so similar. And you know, it's by design. Of course, it was intentional. I guess like colonization is the vehicle that like drives these other levels of oppression and like erasure of our culture, right? It's not just about tattoos. It's about other aspects of our culture uh, as well. And so I think it's just like a good thing to note that like I I did research, I've done research on like other indigenous groups, you know, across the U S not just in regards to tattooing, but like just colonization in general. And I mean, you see that time and time again, is that Europeans specifically, you know, the, the colonizers of the world use the same tactics and usually they have almost I, like identical results. Think about colonization in terms of food, for example, and how I could get really into that, but I'm not going to. But when you look at the change of diets of indigenous people, and I even change of diet, but the erasure of traditional foods and access to traditional foods in the U.S., like how that has affected our people. So I bring up this whole thing about food because I want to point out that it's not just about tattoos. It's about our food and our language and just culture in general. There are accounts of uh, people who came through and quote-unquote explored or invaded our territories that wrote about stuff, and even they noted, like, I mean, when it gets down to it, the erasure of our tattoos. um, Another example of snuffing out our languages, because they said that people could read people's tattoos as if it was a book and know exactly what's going on. I think another thing... As well as, like, obviously, there's a lot of discussion here about men and about women, and I'm just going to drive it home every episode (laughs) that we cover history. It's like, again, this is another place where clearly they were not writing about two-spirit people, and this is also very strategic. I mean, it's like a double-edged sword, right? On the one hand, I'm mad that they came through and were, like, in our territories when they shouldn't be and coming in ways that were not appropriate, Um, and writing down stuff that could have been incorrect because of their own cultural bias of how they're viewing the world Uh, could have been wrong because you know our ancestors were like forget these people I'm gonna feed them some mess Um, or just like whatever but I'm also thankful that it was recorded but I'm fairly certain that they would have have known at that time the power of specifically not documenting things and I think it's because of this There's many of our own people that even still will try and deny the existence of two-spirit people in a traditional context because it simply was not written down by people who came through and colonized, who innately had uh, a dislike and looked down upon um, anything that did not fit their European concepts of gender identities. And obviously the way that, you know, like women operated within our societies that was not well looked upon by them. And certainly anyone that stepped outside of their mind frame of man and woman was just obscene to them and not worthy of being, um, you know, recorded or recorded in such a way that, you know, it would seem like it was a different gender. So I just want to point that out. Granted, like as a full disclosure, as we said, like none of us are experts in, you know, fully in all the ins and outs of the great expanse of tattooing history in the mainstream. We're just kind of covering what we came across so far. So down to always learn more, but also don't come at us in the DMs about it or in the comments. Um, This is essentially like a a very brief one-on-one, but oftentimes like whenever, you know, the history is showcased, they talk about maybe like this period here with Captain Cook um, and the Endeavor and his crew being tattooed and then quickly jump into okay and then like the roots of it is the military and uh the mariners quickly get into that and you quickly learn or like you quickly lose any sight of the ways in which colonization is has a deep thread in this particular especially point in history um and yeah so i think that like for me these 
really outlining this was important so that we could add into that history. I certainly encourage anyone that is interested in tattooing history, anyone that's writing, start writing it in because, yeah, I think that that's a harm that's done and not including that in the history of tattooing. Just to transition us over into our next session, um, one of the other things that's often talked about really quickly in mainstream tattooing history right after, um, you know, like sailors and um, the military having heavily involvement in tattooing is we go into the uh, the freak shows, the sides so the freak shows, sideshows, and circuses. And while this might, for a lot of people um, who know tattooing history, are like, why does this have anything to do with it? Well, we're going to get into it. So I'm going to let Olivia take over and start in on it. was the first known white woman that was tattooed to be put on display for entertainment purposes. Margot Milfin's book, Bodies of Subversion, A Secret History of Women in Tattoo, best discusses Olive Oatman. In 1851, on a journey from Illinois to California, Oatman's Mormon family was attacked in Arizona by Yavapi Indians who captured 14-year-old Olive and her 9-year-old sister, leaving the rest of the family for dead. The girls were held for a year, then traded to the Mojaves, who rescued them from a life of slavery and abuse. For the next four years, a Mojave family raised the children as their own. That included tattooing them on the chin and arm to ensure their passage into the afterlife and to allow their adopted ancestors to recognize them there. Oatman's chin design was drawn on with charcoal, then tattooed with cactus needles carrying the burned and pulverized powder of a blue stone pulled from the Colorado River. She wore five parallel lines stretching from her lower lip to her jawline, balanced on each side by a cone-shaped horizontal lines. Chin tattoos were common among tribes throughout California, now in revival among the Mojaves as well as the Yurok of Northern California. But Mojaves were never forcibly tattooed. Most men and women chose them, sometimes later in life, for fear that if they died barefaced, they would disappear down a rat hole in the afterlife. Indeed, the clean lines of Oatman's tattoo suggest that she submitted willingly to the procedure and its aftercare. When Oatman was ransomed back by the U.S. Army five years after the attack, she went alone. Her sister had recently died in a famine. A year after her return, The Oatman Story was published in a best-selling book called Life Among the Indians, Being an Interesting Narrative of the Captivity of the Oatman Girls. Written by a Methodist minister, Royal B. Stratton, who had taken victims of quote-unquote savage Indians who had branded them as slaves. Oatman perpetuated the story in order to pass, as it were, in the white world. It would have been a social detriment for her to confess that she had come to love her Mohawk family at a time where Indians were commonly considered, in Stratton's words, degraded bipeds. But the tattoo itself confirmed her tribal membership. Mojaves didn't tattoo captives, they only tattooed their own. She spent seven years traveling the country, properly dressed, telling her story not in museums or sideshows, but in schools and churches. Admission was charged, books and photographs were sold, and reviews were written applauding her talents as a speaker who offered not just a harrowing tale, but bigotry aside, a mostly accurate ethnography of the Mojave Indians and their lifestyle. Thus, she became the first American woman to display her tattooed body publicly for money. Inspired by the success of Olive Oatman, A trend of displaying heavily tattooed women in expositions and carnivals arose. White women wishing to flaunt Euro-American beauty standards and behavior would concoct wild stories of being taken captive by Native people and being tattooed forcibly against their will. This narrative allowed them to appear in public, scantily clad, their white skin covered in lamp black, India ink, and cinnabar, reciting Ford's biographies, 
no proper lady would properly adopt. Unlike Oatman, none of these women or men donned traditional Native American tattoos. Rather, their tattoos were comprised of crudely hand-poked images of U.S. patriotic or Christian themes. Thompson states, Their wild tales both explained their tattooed state and negated their agency. As both victims, they were freed from blame for their unusual appearance, but allowed them to capitalize on their experience for an audience. As we discussed in our last episode, this was a period in which the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Muscogee, Cherokee, and Seminole tribes had already been forcibly removed to Indian territory. Tribes across what is now known as the United States had been experiencing heavy levels of multi-pronged outright genocidal attacks by the United States War Department policymakers in Washington and the Christian Church. Some examples include the following events. By the early 1800s, bison were strategically being attacked and moved to undermine tribal nations. Between 1830 and 1885, it's estimated that 40 million bison were killed, which led to an almost near extinction. Bison to many native nations was like going to Walmart. It provided a great many things in order to survive, particularly to tribal nations in the Plains regions. This was not only an attack on tribes militarily, but also as a means to remove a vital food and material source. This was an outright spiritual attack on many nations as they were unable to fulfill the original instructions given to them by the Creator. In 1830, the signing of Dancing Rabbit Creek Treaty occurred for the Choctaw. In 1831, marked the first of three removals of Choctaw people to what became Indian Territory, later Oklahoma. And this was the beginning of the Trail of Tears for Southeastern tribal nations. In 1848, the California Gold Rush began, and this sparked a period between the 1840s through the 1870s where over 16,000 California Native people were slaughtered and a full-out genocide of Native people in California had begun. In 1869, started by a vision of the Paiute prophet Wovoka, the ghost dance had been spreading across tribes in Indian country as a means to go back to the old ways and be protected against the invasion and genocide that tribes were facing. In the same year, 1876, for the first time, Indigenous peoples were put on display for an American audience at the Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia. Entire villages were constructed that supposedly represented how the Indigenous peoples actually lived, all created for the entertainment of white audiences. Such expositions of Indigenous villages became increasingly common, eventually leading to world fairs, carnivals, and sideshows. These practices became immensely popular forms of entertainment for many decades. Such expositions were the predecessors for circuses and sideshows, which emerged as a significant market for the entertainment business. It was P.T. Barnum, in particular, who developed sideshows featuring oddities such as disabled people, the morbidly obese, bearded ladies, and tattooed men and women, all of which is obviously super problematic. The brother-sister team, Annie and Frank Howard, for example, a celebrated Barnum and Bailey act of the 1880s, claimed to have been forcibly tattooed by natives after they were shipwrecked in the South Pacific. This is yet another example of how white people concocted tales of kidnapping and being forcibly tattooed by native people in the South Pacific, as well as in the United States as a scapegoat for why they were tattooed. As a time marker, in 1879, three years later, General George Pratt founded the Charles C. Indian Industrial School with the motto and goal of Kill the Indian, Save the Man. For more information on this, please check out our last episode. Yakoke to everyone for joining us on this latest episode of Indian Chumwa podcast. And we also would like to give a special Yakoke to Danny Cancino for joining us and giving us that wonderful interview um, that really discusses more of the global discussion of the origins of tattooing. 
please go ahead and check out our Instagram or Facebook. We have a link tree located on both of these platforms that includes supplemental material from this month's episode, as well as um, from previous episodes. And always feel free to send us some feedback like through commenting on our social media or sending it to our Nchumwan DMs. We love hearing back from you guys. We love hearing, you know, any questions that you guys might have that on topics we discussed in our episodes. Maybe there was like a point in the episode that really touched you and you really wanted us to hear about that. You know, we love hearing these. It really helps us uh, as our group grow with this podcast because this is a journey. This is a journey for us. This is a journey that we're having with you and your feedback really helps us. I know a few of you have been reaching out about, you know, what's going on with our Patreon. Uh, It has been a process just because there's like a few of us and we're all in different states. So we're just trying to get it going. So hopefully after the holidays, we will officially have that set up. Um, But uh, just stay patient with us. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, uh, you know, anywhere you can. And just try to leave us a review if you can. You know, let your neighbors know. Let your friends know. uh, Let need to know about the Inchumwa. Alrighty. So until next time, chi anumbala chiki. (laughs) 